Well, thank you. Thank you all for your for your testimony. And um, and I now we'll, we'll go to we'll go to questions. Um, I should tell you that since we announced this hearing, um, uh, you know, I've heard uh, a number of uh, concerns about appointing a Cherokee Nation dele delegate from uh, colleagues in the House, and um, as well as uh, you know other tribes, uh, other groups, and um, but I um, but I'm very sympathetic, uh, Chief, with, with with the way Chief Hoskin out outlined this. I mean, I, I really. I think there's a strong case here, um, and that doesn't mean that we don't consider the other uh, issues that other tribes have raised on its merits, um, and we, we, ought, we ought to do that. But, uh, but nonetheless, but I, 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 I want to raise some of the questions that people have asked, um, you know, not to be adversarial, but to get the answers on the record, um, because um, I support this effort, um, and um, so um, you know, we can. I think we can use. Um, these answers to kind of figure out how best we can move forward and how we can um, address some of the concerns that people have raised. Um, and so let me let me go through a few questions here. So uh, Chief uh, Hoskin, uh, the Cherokee Nation Constitution calls for the delegate to be appointed, not elected. Um, yeah, this is in this chamber here, uh, the People's House. Um, you know, uh, I'm not sure there's precedent in modern times for the House to seat an appointed delegate with equal status to someone elected by all the voters in, in Washington, D.C., or Puerto Rico, for example. Uh, so what's the reason for an appointment rather than an election? And would the delegates' uh, constituent, and, and what would the delegates' constituency be? Uh, and do you view it as absolutely necessary that the delegate be appointed? Well, the Cherokee people determined that the, yeah. that the delegate should be appointed. And this is where the United States could show deference to the Cherokee Nation as a sovereign Indian nation. The Constitution of the Cherokee Nation prescribes the manner in which the delegate is, a, is, is selected. It's through an appointment by the principal chief, confirmation by the council. In this instance, I appointed Kim Teehee August of 2019, unanimously concerned by the, confirmed by the council, our, our legislative branch. So in, in, in the first response is deference to the Cherokee Nation's uh, sovereign act of determining how uh, the delegate is selected. The terms of the treaty itself say that the Cherokee Nation shall have a delegate. It doesn't prescribe the manner in which it's selected. I suppose the framers could have done that. I suppose the United States is probably the party that had the pin on this treaty, and they didn't choose to prescribe how uh, the, the uh, delegate was selected. Thirdly, I would say, if you look back in history to the early days of this republic, uh, in fact, territorial delegates were appointed. We have some uh, specific citations we can bring to the committee's attention, but that is, in fact, in the historic record as part of the House of Representatives. Thank you. Uh, I, and you addressed this a little bit in your opening, but um, again, I want to get this on the record. Um, I want to address the, the super vote issue, uh, which is a frequent object, objection that I've heard as, uh, as Congress considers this matter. Uh, I'm sure the constitutionality piece will be covered further uh, in this hearing, so I, I specifically want to talk about representation on committees. Uh, when the treaty was signed, Oklahoma wasn't a state, um, and its residents had no representation in Congress, and Native Americans uh, could not vote. Uh, obviously, now members of the Cherokee Nation do have congressional representation. Uh, delegates Delegates don't vote on legislation, as you pointed out, uh, on the House floor, but they do vote in committee, uh, as well as introducing bills and amendments. Uh, so the idea is that, for example, if a delegate from the Cherokee Nation gets a seat on the Ways and Means Committee, 
uh, and a member from Oklahoma is already on the committee, many Oklahoma citizens would get two representatives on the Ways and Means Committee, uh, so the argument goes. So, Chief Hoskin, how would you respond to people arguing that members of the Cherokee Nation would be doubly represented on committees? Well, the argument misses that the Cherokee Nation is the uh, sovereign nation whose interests are represented by the delegate. I mean, the treaty itself was a treaty between two sovereign nations, the United States and the Cherokee Nation, and the uh, parties uh, determined that the Cherokee Nation uh, governmental interest would be uniquely represented in the House of Representatives. So in that sense, I don't see the double representation. Pointing back to my earlier testimony, uh, the ultimate action of this body in terms of the representative action, in terms of me as a citizen of the second district of Oklahoma, Congressman Mullen is my uh, congressman, uh, his action of voting on final passage is him taking my voice and the voice of uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of other Oklahomans to the House floor, uh, but not before then. Uh, before then, it is a matter of Congress's committee structure. And so in the case of Kim Teehee, a delegate, she would not vote on final passage. So in that respect, there would not be double representation for a single Oklahoman. Cherokee people are all over this country, 441,000 citizens, every state in this country. Uh, but uh, again, the governmental interests of the Cherokee Nation were what the parties contemplated uh, when they crafted the Treaty of 1835. Well, thank you very much for clearing that up, because this is helpful for us to be able to rebut people who you know, bring some of these arguments uh, forward. So I think it's important for the record. Um, you know, uh, you know we're, we're very interested in process here at the Rules Committee, so I want to discuss the mechanics of, of seating a delegate. Uh, Ms. Schwartz, um, how were current delegates like those from Guam, Washington, D.C., or the Mariana Islands seated, and what did that uh, process look like, generally speaking? Thank you. Uh, every delegate, including the current territorial delegates, uh, have been seated through the operation of a statute that passed both houses of Congress and then was signed by the president. Um, so that is, you know, the, the list of those delegates and the attendant statutes um, are listed in my written testimony, and that's historically been the way that delegates were seated in the House. So, and that would require the House to vote, the Senate to vote, the president to sign the bill. Correct, or of course a overturn, a, a, a vote by a supermajority to override a veto of the president. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just really hard dealing with the Senate. Uh, <laughs> so I, I'm just bipartisan. <laughs> right, right. Um, <laughs> Professor Ro uh, Robertson, um, in your view, should a tribal delegate be seated through a statute versus a simple resolution, or would the treaty, or, or, or would the treaty impact that process? I think the treaty has to impact the process. I think that the treaty um, is is written in the way it is for a reason. Uh, you know, it, it might um, uh, have uh, provided for representation in um, in Congress that expressly seated the delegate in the House. I think with the contemplation that the House of Representatives would make the final call. The Senate had the opportunity to weigh in and did at the time of ratification. Uh, as I suggested earlier, and Chief Hoskin, I think made the same point, um, as, as had CRS, the, uh, the, the, the fact that it's an Indian treaty is important because we don't have Indian treaties that aren't self-executing. Um, 
And in fact, in this instance uh, as well, there was no hesitation on the part of the United States, even in the absence of further legislation, uh, in implementing federal rights under the Treaty of New Echota, which included the removal of the Cherokee people. Uh, so one side was happy acting as if there were no need for further implementing legislation. And I think what's happening now uh, is uh, the, this body uh, is considering uh, whether it's time uh, for the United States to finish fulfilling the obligations that it made under this treaty. Um, I think it's also, so in a sense, I guess what I'm suggesting is simply deferring to the language of the treaty. The, the, the other deference that I think may be appropriate, and this relates a bit to your earlier question, Mr. Chairman, uh, is uh, deference to the Cherokee Nation, uh, both on the choice between uh, whether uh, Congress should pass a statute, which would benefit them in the sense that was uh, alluded to earlier, uh, in that it would be of greater duration than two years, uh, or uh, through uh, unilateral House action, um, which would have to be renewed. And they've clearly, as I understand it, opted in favor of the latter course, despite uh, the, the potential termination of that right or the need to renew it. Um, they are the, the party that's going to be impacted uh, most directly. And so so I think that deference may be, may be appropriate here, particularly given the long time it's taken to get around to uh, allowing them to exercise the right. Um, uh, but, but, I, but I also think uh, that it's important, uh, as, as I said earlier, that we don't have a history of requiring implementing legislation uh, and, and deference to the language of the provision. And, and Chief Huskin, do you have any concern with the prospect of the Cherokee delegate position being up for debate every two years um, if it were created through a resolution uh, versus a statute? Well, certainly if it was through a statute, you could make the argument that there's a durability to right. that. But in my view, the United States Senate has acted, the President of the United States has acted, it's incumbent upon the House to act. I acknowledge that that means a, a uh, every two-year proposition of coming back to the House. My feeling is this, as Chief of the Cherokee Nation, if the United States at long last, after nearly two centuries, agrees to uh, honor this promise, uh, in this Congress, and it could happen this year, uh, I, would, uh, I would think it'd be breathtaking for the next Congress to say we're going to then break this promise. Now, I'm a tribal leader. I know my history. I know the United States has broken a promise or two. In fact, it has broken every treaty it's ever had with the United States. But I think in the 21st century, when this House of Representatives seats Kim Teehee, there won't be another Congress that will dare break that promise to the Cherokee Nation. Thank you. Uh, so uh, the Rules Committee has received letters and statements from several other federally recognized tribes requesting that Congress consider seating their delegates as well. We received a statement from the uh, chief of the Choctaw Nation supporting the Cherokee Nation's request and requesting that a Choctaw Nation delegate also be seated on the basis of the 1830 Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek. I ask unanimous consent to insert the statement in the record uh, without objection. We also received a letter from the President of the Delaware Nation requesting that if any tribal delegates are seated, uh, the House also seat a delegate from the Delaware Nation on the basis of the 1778 Treaty of Fort Pitt, or uh, the three successors of the historic Delaware Nation cannot agree on the delegate to seat a delegate from each tribe. Uh, I wish to you know, uh, wish I ask unanimous consent to insert that letter in the record without objection. Uh, we also received a letter from the Assistant Chief of the United 
Kituwa Band of Cherokee Indians in Oklahoma, arguing that they are a successor to the historic Cherokee Nation. I ask unanimous consent to insert the letter in the record along with the resolution appointing a delegate without objection. And finally, we received a letter from the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians arguing that they are a successor to the historic Cherokee Nation. I ask unanimous, cons unanimous consent to insert the letter in the record without objection. Look, we're here today to discuss the Cherokee Nation's request to seat a delegate. But as we continue to work to honor our treaty obligations, I think it's important that Congress also look into these other requests. And so, Ms. Schwartz, I know the Cherokee Nation Treaty was the focus of your report, but has CRS looked into whether other tribes may have treaty-based claims for some form of congressional represent representation? And if not, is that something that CRS could do? Thank you. We have looked at the treaty provisions in the treaties that you've mentioned, um, the treaty with the Delawares of 1778. Uh, if it would be helpful, I'd like to read the way that that provision is sure. worded. Um, the agreement in that treaty was to form a state whereof the Delaware nation shall be the head and have a representation in Congress provided nothing contained in this article to be considered as conclusive until it meets with the approbation of Congress. So that treaty provision uh, first is slightly more um, dependent on congressional approval than the wording of the New Echota Treaty, and it also more expressly contemplates the creation of a state that, of course, was never created and that this body could not create on its own. Uh, the Treaty with the Choctaw, which is sometimes referred to as the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek of 1830, five years before the Treaty of New Echota. I'm going to quote from that as well. Uh, that tribe, uh, quote, expressed a solicitude that they might have the privilege of a delegate on the floor of the House of Representatives extended to them. The commissioners do not feel that they can, under a treaty stipulation, accede to the request but at their desire presented in the treaty that Congress may consider of and decide the application, uh, end quote. So that treaty, in contrast to the Treaty of New Echota, um, did not include a stipulation for a delegate, but mentioned the desire of the tribe to have a delegate. Um, that does not mean that Congress could not take right. an action. Um, but it does mean that the, the claim is somewhat weaker than the Treaty of New Echota provides. So, and let me just, just to put a final point on this. I mean, so the Treaty of New Echota is pretty clear um, about um, what, uh, what was agreed to and what our obligations are. I mean, uh, and, and I guess what I just want, I say that, and, and I just want to make sure that you agree with me on that. I say that, you agree with me on that, right? <laughs> I agree that the language of the okay, Treaty okay, of New yeah, Echota right, is the clearest yeah, of the treaties right. between yeah, the United States yeah. and various tribes. Yeah. And I, I say that because I, what, I, what I hope does not happen is that as we, you know, I mean, everybody, we need to look into everything, right? But me looking into everything doesn't mean that we have to wait, you know, uh, on taking action on something that to me is pretty clear um, as, is, as what we're talking about here today. So we want to we, we respect all of the input that we have received from everybody, and we need to we need we need to consider all of this stuff. However, um, I think the case that uh, the chief uh, is bringing before us today is pretty specific, um, 
and pretty clear, at least the way I look at it. Um, uh, and so, uh, but I, I thank you for your, uh, I now yield to uh, Mr. Cole. Well, first, uh, let me begin where I started off. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for holding this hearing. And I want to thank you and the witnesses for the demeanor of the hearing and the manner in which we're looking at issues, because the issues you raised in your questions, I'll have some of my own to raise, are exactly what I hear from other members. It's really not a partisan issue. It becomes an institutional issue. And so this is extraordinarily helpful in discussing, uh, you know, the institutional uh, matters in front of us and also, uh, you know, indirectly looking at the merits of the claim. And let me say, I, I agree with the chairman, each one of these should consider separately. They're not linked together in any way. Each document we should look at, each decision we should make individually. And, and uh, the fact that others have a claim should not affect the claim that the Cherokee Nation is advancing. I, I very much agree with that. Chief Hoskins, um, I would like to ask you in a more practical way, actually, how do you view the role of the delegate to Congress? Would he or she, and in this case I think we could say she, Kim is a very good friend of mine and somebody I respect greatly, how would, uh, would that member be treated in the same manner as other delegates that we currently have, or, or would he or she have different duties, rights, and responsibilities than like the delegate from Puerto Rico and Guam and Samoa? Well, uh Congressman, thank you for the question. I think they would be similarly situated to the delegates that uh, serve alongside you today. So the opportunity to serve on committee, have committee assignments, vote on committee, propose legislation, debate, uh, all the way to the House floor, of course, not voting on final passage. Otherwise, I think it's the entire depth and breadth of the delegates that serve in this body today. So I think that's really important for other members to understand. We're not talking about anything different here than we already do in multiple cases. Uh, in this regard, in terms of how that delegate would act and, and the authority and responsibilities they would have as a member of Congress. Second, and I get this question a lot, so I want to pose it to you. Obviously, this is an old treaty right, 1835. Why was it not addressed or impressed immediately? And I would also take that on advisement. I mean, you, I'm delighted to hear your answer, but if you have additional information later from historians or whomever, I mean, that's a question I get. Well, gosh. If this was there and it was a treaty, why wasn't it done immediately at the time? Why didn't the Cherokee Nation, and maybe it did, advance the claim at the time? Well, Congressman, I love this question because it gives me an opportunity to talk about Cherokee history, of which there's not enough knowledge in this country. That's you why I opened the door. You certainly possess it, <laughs> but uh, and I, I won't miss the opportunity. Uh, the history since 1835 with the Cherokee Nation has been one of rebuilding and then being suppressed again, being oppressed again, being dispossessed, we seem to be in rebuilding modes through the last two centuries. Think about what happened. The Trail of Tears uh, uh, came after the Treaty of New Echota, nearly destroyed the Cherokee Nation, lost a quarter of our population, ripped apart our institutions, uh, was the near destruction of the Cherokee Nation. We rebuilt that story, Mr. Chairman, ought to be an entire story that every American understands, because our rebuilding is incredible. But it took a great deal of resources. So when we get to our new homeland and what would later become Oklahoma, we are simply trying to survive and rebuild a great society. Decades go by. The Civil War visits the Cherokee Nation and brings even more destruction and division than the Trail of Tears, if you can imagine that. We go into another period of rebuilding in the post-Civil War era, late in the 19th century. Uh, the turn of the 20th century, as we know, the state of Oklahoma is created by the Congress of the United States. 
A number of federal Indian laws are passed, which again dispossess Cherokee people of our collective possessions, our lands, nearly, dispo nearly dispossesses us of our government. I think, uh, Congressman, a lot about my grandfather in this role. Let's get into the 20th century, my grandfather's century, a full-blood Cherokee World War II veteran. The United States suppressed the democracy of the Cherokee Nation to such a degree that he could not vote for a chief of the Cherokee Nation during most of his lifetime. I don't imagine he ever thought his grandson would be the elected chief of the Cherokee Nation. But in the 1970s, we start to rebuild, and we've been on a trajectory, as has other tribes in Oklahoma and across this country, of building economic strength, prosperity back home, and so we are now, I think, in a position where we can, as a practical matter, assert this right, whereas my predecessors in the two centuries before, frankly, we were just trying to hang on to our way of life and rebuild. So that's the explanation. Well, just to offer a personal comment and support, I know exactly what you're talking about. My great-grandfather was treasurer of the Chickasaw Nation at that very same time. And he had to sit there in our capital on the second floor and figure out how to dispose of our property, uh, which was taken for, from us inappropriately, uh, you know, both in terms of individual plots and then, frankly, what we gave back to the United States government to try and protect, like the, what's the heart of now the, the Chickasaw National Recreational Area uh, was literally sacred springs to us, and it was, we didn't want them in private hands, so we literally gave it back to the federal government so it would be innocent it's now the core of a national park but believe me i uh, uh, i understand the difficult decisions that your forebearer made um miss schwartz i want to ask you and i invite the other panelists to also weigh in on this uh, your thoughts as to whether the treaty of new achota is still in force and to explain whether you believe the cherokee nation is a successor uh, in interest uh, to the treaty or whether that's still an open question because obviously we have some some issues raised by others about that. If I can briefly address the latter part of your question first. Um, the Congressional Research Service does not take a position on whether um, the Cherokee Nation or other tribes are successors in interest to the uh, Cherokee tribe that signed the treaty. We are participating in this hearing uh, essentially on the understanding that the Cherokee Nation is a successor in interest. And there has been case law um, determining that the Cherokee Nation is a successor in interest to um, the historic Cherokee tribe, particularly in the context of the 1866 treaty, which did reaffirm the previous treaties, including the Treaty of New Echota. Um, but we do not take a position on whether other um, Cherokee tribes of today are also successors in interest at this point. Thank you very much. It's very good. Uh, I'd invite Chief Hoskins and then uh, Professor Robertson to, to answer the same question. Well, Representatives, I do have an opinion on this. <laughs> I suspected you might. And I think plainly the historic record and the law uh, demonstrates that the Cherokee Nation, of which I've got the honor of being the elected principal chief today, is the Cherokee Nation, the same Cherokee Nation that is party to every treaty with this country since its founding and that predated this country. Uh, I have great respect for the two other uh, Cherokee bands that have been mentioned, the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians in North Carolina and the United Katua Band of Cherokee Indians in Oklahoma. Uh, the issue with the Eastern Band was, uh, was uh, disposed of by the United States Supreme Court uh, in a decision in which they determined that they were not the successor in interest. That question's been asked and answered. The United Katua Band of Cherokee Indians in Oklahoma was authorized by this Congress in 1946 and recognized in 1950 
uh, more than a century after the Treaty of 1835, certainly, and well after the last treaty that this nation, the Cherokee Nation, signed with this country in 1866. Uh, the Cherokee Nation, of which I have the honor of being the chief, is the same Cherokee Nation that signed those treaties. Uh, Professor Robertson? Yeah, I'm not sure I have much to add to what's been said by my co-panelists. Uh, I do understand that the Interior Department is looking into the um, some of the questions that you raised, Congressman Cole, uh, and I believe that process is ongoing, so it may be that there are answers coming from Interior. Okay. Uh, Professor Robertson, let me ask you this question. Um, both the Constitution and Supreme Court precedent have highlighted the equality principle, the idea that one person's vote is equal to another person. With the potential of appointing a delegate who would already have congressional representation, would you have any concerns about the constitutionality of the delegate? And I would invite others to respond as well. Yeah, I, I think the, the argument that I, that I, that I find persuasive uh, is, is the distinction between a, that's been raised in some of the materials presented is the distinction between a member slash representative and a delegate. Uh, the power of delegates is, well, there may be some practical uh, uh, advantages uh, to our represented constituency to having a delegate in, in terms of opportunities on committees. The, the denial of the power to vote for final passage of legislation, I think, is a severe limitation. And I think, uh, I think the Constitution uses the phrases uh, member and representative uh, deliberately uh, to, to, you know, to assure, and, and the constitutional law cases relate to those positions um, because they have a final say over the laws that, uh, that, that govern, govern the land. Uh, and there, I think the equal, equal protection concern is, is most severe. So, um, you know, without having dived into the issue in depth, um, my, my, my initial thought is that uh, that, that distinction is, is material uh, and so I don't know that I would have any particular concerns. Okay, uh, I'll turn to you, Ms. Schwartz, and then Chief Hoskins, if I'd love to get your opinion as well. So the uh, instruction that we have from the courts um, is not directly applicable to this case. Uh, we do have determinations about the constitutionality of the current delegates, the territorial delegates, but there is a distinction in that none of the territorial delegates represent um, citizens or residents who already have representation in the House. So the particular situation that we're facing here is not one that the courts have weighed in on. Um, that said, uh, simply because something has not been done before does not necessarily mean that it cannot be done. Uh, it's simply a consideration that this body should take into account when it is making its decisions. Uh, there is the possibility that uh, someone could try to raise an equal protection claim. It's not clear whether the courts would hear that claim or indeed how they would rule on it if it were raised. Thank you. Chief Hoskins? Well, I would just reiterate an earlier statement that I made that the uh, the, the power, the voice of the representatives of this body is on final passage. The delegate would not possess that right and so would not be exercising that 
uh, final uh, authority on the part of a member of Congress. And let's remember, the United States crafted this provision and said that the Cherokee Nation shall have a delegate. That's the Cherokee Nation's governmental interest. The Cherokee Nation has read that, and, and that informed our decision as Cherokee people to fashion our Constitution to appoint the delegate to represent the Cherokee Nation's government. I think that uh, the United States would uh, need to uh, err on the side of making this uh, provision uh, effective uh, rather than, uh, uh, I don't want to suggest finding a way to make it ineffective, but I would say uh, let's find a way to make it effective just looking at the plain terms of the treaty. The Cherokee Nation shall have this right. Okay. Let me ask one final question, and I'll address it initially to you, uh, Dr. Robertson, but I also would then open it up uh, to the panel. And, uh, you know, in this body, uh, we all have our differences, but uh, we're generally pretty united on we're not very fond of the United States Senate. Uh, you know, and, and it seems to be a bipartisan consensus on that, and it really doesn't matter who happens to be in control at a given moment. Uh, we, we have our problems with the Senate. So we have a treaty uh, that was obviously, uh, you know, concluded by representatives of the President of the United States, uh, approved by the Senate of the United States, but affects the membership of the House of Representatives. And uh, uh, we obviously were not party to that decision. Um, so to proceed, uh, does the House expressly have to act, number one, uh, and number two, or, or could you go to a court, for instance, and, and okay, this is a treaty right and asserted, but does the House, number one, have to act? And again, uh, uh, and we've addressed this a little bit, but I want to be very clear about it. Uh, your opinions uh, collectively between the virtue, again, of a statute and a resolution, depending on how we act. And I think you've all addressed this one way or the other, but I think it would be very helpful to have it very specific. So if I can start, Professor Robertson, with you. Sure. Well, I think on the latter question, you know, the path of least resistance, especially if it comported with um, emotional predispositions, um, might be the best way to go, which is to say, um, to heck with the Senate. Let's uh, let's just do this ourselves because we decide that it's the right thing to do, to follow through with uh, obligations that the United States uh, undertook uh, to follow through with um, ages ago. Uh, uh, and um, by the way, I might add, my mother was a Senate staffer during the whole of my childhood, so I understand institutional inter inter uh, <laughs> we all house have rivalry to be ashamed very of well. Our past. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the uh, uh, your your first question, I'm sorry, can you remind me? It, it was whether you have Basically, to act or, or whether this could this right be enforced uh, in a court without action by the House? In other words, does this require action by the House, be it resolution or statute, and then second, the merits of yeah. either one of those approaches? Yeah, I, th I think, uh, as a ma my, my guess is, uh, I just taught the political question doctrine cases last week, and my, my, my gut is that this is precisely the sort of question that a federal court would decide it did not want to mess with. Um, and so my guess is that this would likely be something that the courts wouldn't wouldn't want to deal with. Although theoretically, I'm, I imagine they they would have jurisdiction and, and could. Um, so that's just sort of my guess based on having done this stuff for a long time. Um, as to um, as to the the merits uh, again of a of a statute or uh, the House acting unilaterally, I, I guess I'd repeat what I said earlier. I, I don't think there's any requirement for a statute. 
Uh, I think that uh, under the terms of the treaty and just the way that courts have dealt with Indian treaties forever, I think this is something you could do on your own. Uh, I think that the, the, the objective disadvantage is, again, the one that's been alluded to earlier, which is that it, it, uh, would, it would be a terminal um, uh, right in the sense or a renewable right. Um, so, but that's a cost that would be paid uh, by the Cherokee Nation, and it, it sounds as though they're more than willing to pay it. And so uh, it just seems to me, uh, again, circling back to the beginning, my answer uh, that, you know, it would be easier for you guys to do this on your own. Uh, if you believe that it's the right thing to do, and I believe it's the right thing to do, then I'd say go ahead and do it. And then, you know, see how it works out, see if there are challenges. Uh, I'm not sure uh, that there would be challenges. Uh, I agree with CRS that uh, that courts would find uh, justiciable or that they wanted to involve themselves with. Uh, and then in two years, uh, you know, see where everybody was and, and renew it, or maybe at that time uh, pursue uh, pursue a statute. Ms. Ward? Thank you. So to the first part of your question, does the House have to act? I think the best answer is yes. I think it would raise serious constitutional questions if the Senate and the President acting through a treaty could bind the House to take an action that so uh, inherently affected the internal workings of the House. Uh, that would be... Um, unprecedented. It would be very different from uh, any other uh, operation of, of treaties that I'm aware of. Um, to the second part, could this be enforced in court if the House did not act? I again think the best answer is no. Um, and again, we don't have case law directly on this, so uh, the answer is not certain. But uh, there's there's two things that I think are problematic there. First, it's really unclear who would have the ability to bring that suit to try to enforce it and whether they would have standing. Um, secondly, as my co-panelist alluded to, it may present a political question that the courts would not want to engage with um, under sort of principles of comity. And thirdly, I think if they did address it, that the separation of powers um, principles would really come into play, that they would be unlikely to order the House to do something that, again, so intricately affects the internal workings of the House uh, on the authority of something that the House had no say in. Thank you very much. Chief Hoskins? Congressman, as to the question of, of the courts, uh, I'll, I'll probably... Uh, 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 think a bit more on the answer uh, before giving uh, this body a final one, uh, in part because I'm going to think about what the, my fellow panelists have said, uh, in part because the Cherokee Nation has spent quite a bit of time across the street in a lot of cases lately, and maybe we've had our full of the judiciary. But, uh, but in any case, I think that, uh, I think that, the, that this body, uh, as to the second question, this body absolutely could take action, should take action, and I think that uh, from the perspective of the Cherokee Nation, and I don't mean to, to be overly dramatic, but uh, we have waited two centuries. We believe the Senate has acted. We believe the President has acted. And now we think the House acting, even though it is not a durable instrument, uh, that a resolution uh, should pass this body. And I think it would send a powerful message uh, to the country for the United States to keep its promise in that fashion. 
Thank you very much. Thank uh, all of you again for appearing. And uh, again, Mr. Chairman, thank you no, very, very much for holding this all hearing. Right. I'm very, very appreciative. Yield back. Yeah. And, and, and I just want to be clear. I mean, we, we could actually do both, right? I mean, you, we could actually pass a, a, a resolution uh, to see the delegate, and at the same time, if we wanted to, work on a, a, a more durable statute, uh, which will take a lot more time. I mean, you, so there's nothing that says you can't do both, right? Uh, correct. I'm right. not aware of any prohibition right. okay. on doing right. both. Right. Uh, Mrs. Torres. Um, thank you, Chairman and Ranking Member. I think um, a lot of my questions um, were proposed by, by both of you. Um, I do want to um, go back to Ms. Schwartz. You've, um, you started to quote a bit of Article 7, are you able to read the entire Article 7 to us here today? Yes, I am. Great. I don't have to read this little tiny writing on my <laughs> Article 7. The Cherokee Nation, having already made great progress in civilization and deeming it important that every proper and laudable inducement should be offered to their people to improve their condition, as well as to guard and secure in the most effectual manner the rights guaranteed to them in this treaty, and with a view to illustrate the liberal and enlarged policy of the government of the United States toward the Indians in their removal beyond the territorial limits of the states, it is stipulated that they shall be entitled to a delegate in the House of Representatives of the United States whenever Congress shall make provision for the same. Um, provision. When I look up the word provision, it's true meaning, Preparation. It does not say by Congress passing a law. It simply says provision. We need, in order for you to be a member of Congress, a delegate, or a commissioner, you need to have your name on a ledger. You need to have an office. You need to have a budget. You need to have staff. When I read through Article 7, and specifically speaks to improving conditions for the Cherokee Nation, and that Congress is left with its duty to provide room for another representative in the People's House, it does not say that Congress should pass a resolution. There were 20 signers, 10 witnesses. This treaty was very clear in defining the word to improve conditions and preparation in my opinion. I'm not an attorney, nor do I pretend to be today. Um, but I do believe that the preparation that we were talking, that they were talking about here in the treaty was not for the vote of Congress because the treaty had already been agreed in consent with the Senate. It's unfortunate that the Senate did not agreed to have a delegate in their house, but this is the people's house. Um, so, 
you know, I think that that is where we need to look at how do we honor that. Um, Chief Hoskin, has the federal government um, improved conditions of the Cherokee Nation? Has the federal government, aside from, from Article 7, upheld its duty to provide and protect? Thank you, Congresswoman. If I look at the last two centuries, I would say the balance is in favor of the United States having diminished the Cherokee Nation, suppressed the Cherokee Nation, dispossessed us from things that are precious and put us on the receiving end of uh, things that I think this country uh, now regrets. If you look uh, more recently in history, our relationship with the United States is much improved. I mentioned earlier the period of the 1970s to the present. That was a change in federal Indian policy that restored the uh, civic institutions of the Cherokee Nation and other tribes, put us on a path that, frankly, we would be on before European contact, which is self-determination, charting our own course. And so in that respect, in the last 40, 50 years, we have been on a trajectory of improvement. Uh, the United States has a great deal of work to do. I mean, when it comes down to it, the next time the United States fulfills a solid promise to the Cherokee Nation will be the first time it's done it. Uh, the next time, and with all due respect to the Congress, the next time the Congress fulfills its trust obligations with respect to funding and other types of resources will be the first time that it's done it. So there is more work to do. In the balance of two centuries, the United States is far behind improving conditions. However, we are on a path of progress. What an amazing mark of progress would it be to fulfill a two-century-old treaty that up to this point, and I want to stress this to the committee, up to this point, if you ask a charity, what, Cherokee, what does the Treaty of Nuachota mean to you? It means pain, indignity, and injustice. We can turn that into justice and a measure of restoration for the Cherokee people and a measure of progress. In looking at whether the government, the federal government has provided even basic needs, water. Well, if you look across Indian country, there's still a great deal of deficits. It's true in the Cherokee Nation. I think about in this role uh, what Kim Teehee may do in this Congress as a champion for all of Indian country. And we know that there's parts of Indian country where the circumstances are completely desolate when it comes to basic infrastructure. There are parts of Cherokee Nation where it's lacking, uh, and I think the United States can do a great deal more to close that gap. Having a voice in this Congress will help that, but there is more work to do. Because and I think that is what is key here, is having a voice in this Congress. Representation truly does matter, uh, in my opinion. Um, as, I, as I close, I haven't had an opportunity to... Um, speak with you before today to thank you um, about the work that you have done in my district um, to ensure that the, the shelter, the migrant shelter for children, tender age children, um, was run by you. Um, you received the federal contract on that. Um, and while my weekly visits uh, might have not been as welcome to some, to the Cherokee Nation. They were very welcome. Holding the Cherokee Nation accountable for um, uh, keeping to the contract, the specific contract of what was called out to protect um, these children, I was there every week to make sure that you were doing that. And you were there every week at the table ensuring that my questions were answered. Um, 
So when we look at um, other shelters and we look at the abuses from um, forcing children to um, take narcotics, um, you can call them medication, They're, I call them drugs, um, sexual violence against tender age children, physical violence against um, children. None of that happened under your watch and my watch because we were both diligent. So thank you for um, you know, meeting the needs of that contract. And I hope that someday the federal government will also meet you eye to eye on this treaty. And I yield back. Dr. Burgess. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, again, I, I, I will also stipulate that uh, Ranking Member Cole asked a great number of the questions that, uh, that I was contemplating, but thank, thank you all for being here today. And, and Chief, can I just ask you, because it is a, a deficit in my historical knowledge, you, you keep referring to an 1866, re, what, was it a reformatting or a re-signing of, of, of the treaty at that, at that time, is, is that correct? That's correct. If I could, 1866, of course, was coincided with the end of the American Civil War, of which the Cherokee Nation figures in, uh, in terms of splitting our nation and our various alignments uh, with uh, the Confederacy and with the Union. And it's a, it is itself an interesting history and an important history. In the post-Civil War era, there were a series of treaties that the United States came to the tribes at that era and renegotiated, and so there were changes. The key provision, and I'm glad you brought this, is that in the 1866 treaty, the framers were careful to say that any provision in a prior Cherokee Nation treaty not inconsistent with the new terms were carried forward. So in that respect, Article 7 of 1835 was explicitly carried forward as part of that clause. So it would have been <coughs> reaffirmed as yes, a result sir. of the 1866 treaty. And, uh, Ms. Schwartz, thank you for reading Article 7 for us. Uh, it is, as, as, as I listened to you you're reading that, it, in my mind's eye, it was describing a people that were relocated outside of the then existing United States to an area that was, in fact, a territory, not a state. Does that have any implication for what we're discussing today now that statehood, whether we'd agreed with it or not, <laughs> I'm just kidding because Texas Oklahoma has a certain rivalry. But after statehood was conferred upon Oklahoma, did that does that change the equation now that Oklahoma is a state? Uh, it's certainly something that this body can take into consideration when it is deciding its interpretation of the treaty language. Um, the words immediately preceding the delegate provision do say. Um, in their removal beyond the territorial limits of the states. So certainly at the time the treaty was signed, the Cherokee did not have other representation in Congress because the area to which they were removed was not a state. Um, however, it does then say it is stipulated that they shall be entitled to a delegate in the House of Representatives uh, whenever Congress shall make provision for the same. And that provision is not explicitly contingent on the uh, territory remaining not a state. And because, uh, at least in courts, 
one of the canons of construction is that treaties are not abrogated by implication, um, meaning that a court is probably unlikely to find that the delegate provision was implicitly abrogated by statehood because Congress, when they made Oklahoma a state, did not say, and now the delegate provision of the Treaty of New Echota is abrogated. Let me just ask you a question then. Say, for example, the Dakota Territory, when statehood uh, was achieved by North and South Dakota, presumably they had territorial representatives, did, or did they have territorial representatives in the House of Representatives at that time? I'm going to refer to uh, my chart for Dakota, there was a territorial representative established in 1861. So when statehood was achieved, it was no longer necessary to have the territorial representative. Is that, would that be a correct understanding of what? Correct. So the Statehood Act or the Enabling Act itself generally uh, took care of arranging those procedural matters. And then when Oklahoma became a member of the United States, and we are grateful that you became a member of the United States, even though you raid our high school football ranks for your football team. Uh, but seriously, what... I'll stipulate, usually this year accepted, our Texas players are better than your Texas players. <laughs> is, was, does this figure into the discussion at all, is, is the only question I'm asking, because just like Chairman McGovern and Ranking Member Cohen, we all get questions about this, and I just want to be sure that we have our facts correct when we present this information on the floor of the House. So because there was not a Cherokee delegate in the House at the time of Oklahoma statehood, the legislation uh, enabling Oklahoma statehood did not mention a Cherokee delegate. So, so it was neither acknowledged as a continuing promise okay. nor eliminated. Okay, so it was silent on the, on the fact. Okay, well, and I'll just ask the same question you've probably been asked now three or four different times. And um, if you detect a theme of, of concern about the other body here in the Capitol, I mean, it's, 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 it's earned uh, because we've all had experience, but the concept of the Senate requiring an action of the House is, seems a little bit strange to some of us, recognizing that in the separation of powers, they can't raise taxes, we can't do treaties, but then they can rename House-passed bills and insert entire new provisions in them that are revenue raisers. So the Senate effectively gets around the fact that the House is the, the site of the origin of all revenue bills, but we never enter, enter into treaties on the House side. So this is something that, from an institutional perspective, is... I think we need to address the ability of the Senate to require us to do something as a result of one of the treaties that the Senate has entered into. So I think that's why my answer to the question of whether this could be enforced in court absent any action by the House is likely not. I think a court would be very reluctant to find that the Senate and the President could essentially bind the House yeah. to, to do something. Well, well, Chief, let me just ask you, has, has it ever been tried? Has, it ever, has, has the process ever gone through the courts to 
try to enforce the Senate's provision on the House? The, an the answer is no. The first act of asserting this right was when I took the United States up on its offer and appointed Kim Teehee and coming here today. Well, thank you all for uh, for your input this morning. It's been uh, it's been very educational. I've learned a number of things. It's uh, what can I say? I mean, it's obviously a, an honor to serve with uh, Ranking Member Cole. He's uh, he and I came into Congress at the same time. I've learned a great deal from his wisdom here on the on the committee, and obviously we'll continue to do so. But thank you all for your participation this morning. Thank you. Back, Mr. Thank Chairman. you, Mr. Raskin. Mr. Chairman, thank you. I need to start um, by asking unanimous consent to submit uh, a statement for the record. Uh, last year, Secretary Holland approved a new constitution for the Cherokee Nation, uh, which explicitly ensures the protection of the political rights of all Cherokee citizens, including the tribe's black members. These individuals are descendants of the Cherokee freedmen who were enslaved by the tribe before the Civil War and were um, emancipated afterwards. Echoing Secretary Holland, I want to applaud the Cherokee Nation for its decision to honor uh, its moral and legal obligations to the freedmen and their descendants. It's a crucial step towards racial equality, justice, and reconcilia reconciliation, and it's worthy of our appreciation and our uh, emulation. Mr. Chairman, therefore, I ask unanimous consent to insert into the record a statement from Mr. Demario Solomon Simmons of Tulsa, Oklahoma, which commends the Cherokee Nation for taking this step and expresses hope that it will herald a new era of openness and inclusivity um, in the nation. Without objection. Thank you. Um, Mr. Chairman, um, uh, it, it's an extraordinary uh, moment that uh, you and Mr. Cole have uh, allowed us to have here. Um, and uh, none of us um, should be unaware of the history-making nature of this proceeding. Um, I wanted to start by asking whether uh, Delegate Teehee is actually present. It, it, Delegate Teehee is here. Good. Well, I want to welcome Delegate Teehee. Um, at least on behalf of the, the good people of Maryland's uh, 8th Congressional District, and it's uh, great to see you here uh, the, representing the Cherokee Nation. Um, and um, I, I want to ask a few questions, which I think will lead up to my basic point, but I want to make sure I believe in my basic point, so that's why I want to ask some questions. But based on what I've heard, I think there's a very e one easy question and one hard question before us. The easy question is, um, do we have a, uh, a legal and, I would say, a moral obligation to seat uh, Ms. Teehee? Uh, and the answer to that seems to me uh, clearly to be yes. Uh, this is just a matter of reading uh, the, the 1835 Treaty of New Echota, um, and then uh, establishing its meaning and then acting upon it. That doesn't strike me as difficult at all, but I do want to ask a few more questions related to it. The difficult question is, what does it mean to be a delegate from uh, a nation to the House of Representatives, which we've never done before, because the delegates we have are either from territories, American Samoa, Guam, Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico, or they are from the District of Columbia, which inhabits still a different uh, sub-constitutional uh, jurisdictional plane. Um, and so this would be new for us. Um, and it's not a foreign nation that um, we would be seating uh, a delegate for. It's a domestic nation. Um, 
And so I think that that's the question we need to look at. But l let me just quickly try to go through some questions to make sure that uh, I've got confidence in these conclusions. Um, to begin with, um, uh, have there been delegates elected before by the Cherokee Nation, or is Delegate Teehee the first one? Delegate Teehee is the first one. If you look in the historic record, there may be references to a delegation going to Washington, D.C., but they were not elected in the formal sense, and they were not done pursuant to this treaty. And do you have within your records um, any correspondence historically between the tribe and the House of Representatives or Congress asking to be seated before? I'm not aware of any contemporaneous documents. On okay, that. fair enough. So we, there's no adverse authority that the Congress said no or the House said no. Um, okay, that's out there. Um, the people have talked about the language in Section 7 of the treaty about whenever Congress shall make provision for the same. Of course, um, Congress is defined in our Constitution under Article 1, which says that each House shall define the rules of its own proceedings, and we also decide upon our own members, um, and we certainly decide on our own delegates. Um, uh, there, it's true that there have been statutes uh, passed before, but they are seated uh, by the House, and this one comes to us in a somewhat different posture because it comes by virtue of treaty. And of course, the Supremacy Clause of the Constitution says that treaties uh, exist on the exact same level as federal statutes do. So it's a binding law upon us. A treaty is binding upon us just like any other federal law would be. Um, so the, right now, Delegate he came to her official position by virtue of an appointment. Is that right? That's correct. And is that under uh, some bylaw that you've written? That's pursuant or? to the Constitution of the Cherokee Nation, which was ratified by the Cherokee people. The new Constitution. Correct. That, the, the, Constitution yeah, the, the new Constitution includes that language, yes. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so, um, all right, so all of this would be self-executing. I guess my question is, um, what we would have to figure out only is rival claims to being the successor to the Cherokee Nation that entered into the 1835 treaty. And I haven't had a chance to scrutinize the, the letters like from the United Kituwa Band of Cherokee Indians in Oklahoma. I don't know, how many other claimed rivals are there? Is it just that one? Or Congressman, from what I heard earlier from the chairman, there were letters received from two uh, bands of Cherokees, the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians and the United Ketua Bands, and I, I addressed earlier that uh, those claims to successorship, in my opinion, don't uh, withstand any scrutiny. All right, and so we, we, I, I do think, Mr. Chairman, that's something we would have to figure out. Um, you know, when we say, well, th when the court says that's a political question, that means we have to figure it out. It is up to us. Our decision and judgment on that would be binding. Um, it certainly seems from everything I've seen that you guys are the logical successor, but obviously we would have to do our due diligence on that before we you know, rendered um, a final decision on it. Um, all right, so then I, I wanna shift to this other question of what actually it would mean to send a delegate here. Um, my understanding of the delegate positions falls into a couple of different categories. If you look at the Northwest Ordinance and the delegate positions that were created then, Jefferson basically had the idea that the delegates would be representing territories that are essentially states in waiting or states in training, states 
uh, in tutelage to become states, right? And so they would send delegates, and those representatives would learn more about the federal government and also take back information from the federal government to the territories. Um, that's obviously not applicable because you're not on the pathway to being admitted as a state, and that's not part of the understanding, as, at least as I get it. Um, the other, of course, is the, the District of Columbia delegate. Um, Washington, D.C. has itself petitioned for statehood, but that's for the non-federal areas. That's for the residential areas, which they want to be ceded to a new state. The uh, existing capital uh, federal district would still be directly under uh, Congress. I don't know whether or not there would still be a non-voting delegate there, but that's also seen as like a permanent part of the country. But so uh, you would arrive as something between a delegate and like an ambassador, right? And I just wonder, that will have implications in terms of uh, how we seat you and what you do or what Delegate Teehee would do once she gets here. Um, she obviously can't vote on final passage. The Supreme Court and the D.C. Circuit Court have been clear about that, even with respect to these delegates. In a case called Michael versus Anderson, I think it was in 1994, they said these people cannot vote on final passage, um, even though it's okay for them to vote in committee because that you know, can be reversed on the floor. So it wouldn't be that. Um, we would want to make sure, presumably, that there be every equal dignity and ceremony attendant to the office that the other delegates get. I guess the big question is serving on committee. And then there is that, that question of, the, is there a kind of double representation that, uh, you know, the Cherokee Nation is obviously all over the country. How many states are included? All 50 states. All 50 states, okay. So, um, yeah, in, in that sense, I guess the, the members of your nation would be double represented if they had a representative on the committee from their district, and then they also had the Cherokee Nation representative there. I don't know how big a deal that is, uh, because presumably Delegate Teehee or her successors would be looking out for the interests of the nation as a nation. Is that understanding right? That's my understanding. That's how yeah. I read the treaty. That's how I understand her role. Yeah. So would there be only certain committees that you think she would want to serve on, or you would want your delegate to serve on? Um, do you not want to serve on committees? Uh, and what is your thinking about that? This is my view of it, Congressman, is at the time, I think the framers of this treaty plainly uh, were concerned about the governmental interest of the Cherokee Nation being having a place in this body. If you look at what our governmental interests are today, they really cross every committee that you have. The Cherokee Nation today, here's the shorthand way I would describe our government. We do everything the United States does except maintain a standing army and print money. Sometimes I wish we printed money, but we don't print money. Uh, but we do a great deal of things. And so if you look at what we do in terms of our governmental interest, I think it spans the entire depth and breadth of this body. And so I would think that any committee assignment would be fair game. Perhaps there's some exceptions to that, uh, but I think primarily if you focus on what our main day-to-day -day issues are certainly natural resources, certainly our engagement with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and certainly uh, anything that touches upon sovereignty would be important. But again, health care, human services, yeah. infrastructure, it's broad. Well, the, so the, I, the I... The Rules Committee yeah, is a good committee. The Rules Committee is a great committee. <laughs> well, the, the, Mr. Chairman, um, just on this point, I think that we should be um, creative in our thinking about it. There may be, you know... Uh, a certain committee that 
that the member could be a standing member of or would be, you know, like natural resources or interior, you know, something like that. Or we could also say, because it, uh, all of the work of the Congress affects the Cherokee Nation, perhaps the member could just wave on to any committee when there is a hearing of interest to her or to him. I don't know. I think we could think about it differently because I do think for us, we have to distinguish between the role of territorial and district delegates from the role of a delegate of a nation, even, even if it's a domestic nation. And um, in any event, I want to thank you for your patience. That should be a, a massive understatement, obviously. Um, but I don't think we should be very patient uh, in the final days of this Congress. Uh, and I, I think we should act with dispatch to make this happen. I think there are some final things we got to figure out, but we should move as quickly as possible. I yield back to you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, uh, Mr. Reschenthaler. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate it. Uh, most of my Actually, not most. All my questions have already been asked and answered at this point. Uh, but I think it's a really fascinating discussion. I can't help but to think how different our history might have been had we brought the tribes more into the fold uh, from the very beginning. But uh, with that, I'm looking forward to having an offline discussion with my good friend from Maryland because I've got some questions. I was going to ask you to yield for a question, but I don't want to put you on the spot. <laughs> so, so I'll talk to you offline about some of my thoughts to see, to see your opinion. So. Um, thanks to everybody for testifying, and I yield back. Ms. Scanlon. Thank you. Uh, thank you all for your testimony today, and thank you, Chairman McGovern and Ranking Member Cole, for holding this hearing. It's uh, certainly not often we have such a unique uh, opportunity to really probe into history and um, a lot of really fundamental questions. Um, I, I guess one thing I was really struck by... Um, Chief Hoskins uh, quoting from John Ridge's letter and um, the, really made it explicit that the Cherokee agreement to the treaty um, was really, that the issue of the delegate was really central. And I was curious, and I would ask this of each of our witnesses, are there other key elements uh, from the contemporaneous, uh, the, the folks who negotiated the treaty that that you would point to as being particularly instructive as to what people intended with respect to the delegate? And I'd start with you, Chief Hoskins. Oh, Representative, thank you for that. I, I, I wish I could be more responsive to your question. That was a very powerful passage mm -hmm. from John uh, Ridge, and uh, that entire history of how that treaty was negotiated is itself fascinating. Uh, if there's more to add to the record, we mm -hmm. will supplement. I'm not, though, prepared here to pr provide any further, but I do think that dro drove the point home nicely. <laughs> okay. And Ms. Schwartz, is there anything, including you can point us to the particular parts of the CRS history if, or CRS report, if that's easiest? Yeah, it's not um, directly contemporaneous with the New Echota Treaty, but in a later treaty that was negotiated actually with the Confederacy, there is a similar delegate provision that goes into a little bit more detail um, about the expectation that the delegate would have the same rights and privileges of other representatives in that body. Of course, that's not a treaty with the United States, and it was about, um, uh, about 30 years after the Treaty of New Echota. But I do think that Congress could look to that for some assistance in understanding the New Echota Treaty provision in the way that the tribe likely would have understood it. Okay, thank you. And Professor Robertson, anything? 
Yeah, I'm not sure I can add much to that, except uh, in terms of, uh, I think your point is absolutely on the money. And I think uh, in terms of the importance, it's uh, maybe helpful to look back to the 1830 Dancing Rabbit Creek Treaty, uh, with which the Nuachota negotiators would, of course, have been uh, familiar. Uh, and I think the difference in language uh, must reflect their uh, intention that, that this that this right be um, more precisely articulated. Uh, and I think that's a reflection, must be, a, a, again, a reflection of the uh, of the nation's uh, or the negotiating team's, uh, at any rate, commitment to uh, to securing the delegate right. Thank you. Uh, one more question. Chief Hoskin, um, I guess, can you just tell us a little bit about why now? Why the push now? What is the importance um, to the Cherokee people of um, seating a delegate at this time? And... and what you think that can accomplish? Well, personally, I feel duty-bound to assert every single right of every single treaty we have because I know that our ancestors paid a dear price for it, and I can't imagine leaving this office of principal chief without doing everything I can to hold the United States accountable for that as a measure of justice. Uh, the council members are here behind me, and I don't want to speak for them, but they have echoed this in my conversations with them. Uh, the why now gets back to the question of why not uh, 100 or two centuries ago, and of course I went through the history, the Cherokee Nation, this is what I want Americans to understand. Yes, two centuries we had this right, but did we possess it in a real way? We didn't possess it in a real way when the government of the United States suppressed our institutions almost out of existence. We are now, uh, again, I'm thinking back to my grandfather, he would be awestruck that his grandson is in the Rules Committee of the House of Representatives asserting a treaty right that his ancestors that were at least around for and suffered for. And so I think why now, why not now? Okay. Thank you. I respond to my friend very quickly, just to make a point. This is not unusual. I mean, uh, we've had settlements with the United States of America and various Indian nations about the United States' failure to sustain its treaty rights decades after, you know, tribe after tribe have asserted. And historically, politically, for reasons that ought to be embarrassing to all of us. Those were not kept at the time, but later it was recognized, yeah, we did the wrong thing. Uh, you know, we've had litigation in Oklahoma involving Cherokees, Choctaws, Chickasaws on water rights and riverbeds. And, yeah, we didn't do what we were supposed to do. You're not asking for this back, but here's the settlement or something. Or you are getting this back because we just did the wrong thing. So, uh, you know, I don't think you can guilt people for not doing something in a time period that was impossible to do, but maintaining the right to do it when they had the opportunity to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, I think that's what we're wrestling with here. But uh, uh, again, I, I certainly understand uh, asserting rights after the fact, because they were there, but people just knew, okay, we're not going to get that. You know, we're, we're, they agreed to it, but they're not going to keep their word. But now... It is a different time, and, and the government of the United States, as, as my good friend the chief said, uh, in recent years has done a lot in various areas to correct mm -hmm. some of the inequities of the past. And I think of that in our own constitutional history. You know, all men are created pretty equal or pretty clear, uh, but when they wrote it in 1787, uh, didn't apply to women, didn't apply mm -hmm. to black men, yellow men, red men. We figured out over time, hey, that's what we wrote. 
-hmm. And that's that's the implication. And I think that's what mm -hmm. you're looking at here. But mm -hmm. again, that's just my opinion. Thank I thank my friend for allowing me to, to insert myself. Certainly. And really appreciate everyone's testimony on, on helping us figure out a path forward because it certainly seems like we need to take that path. Thank you. Yield back. Well, thank you very much. Um, you know, um, let me ask the, I mean, the panel, I mean, um, I think everybody's asked their questions, but uh, let, me, let me go to uh, 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 Professor Robertson and, uh, and, and Ms. Schwartz and, and Chief again. If there's any final things that you want to say for the record before I yield to Mr. Cole for his closing remarks, and I'll make a final statement as well. So, uh, Prof uh, Professor Robertson, any, anything that you want to add uh, for this re for the record of the hearing? Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Congressman. I, I'd just like to add uh, maybe a little bit in what, by way of response to a couple of questions that members of the committee asked a minute or so ago, um, uh, including uh, this most recent um, comment by um, Congressman Cole and to, to sort of reinforce the point that he made. I think it's important to remember that one avenue that was closed in pursuing this right to, to tribes in general, but to the Cherokee Nation in particular, was the judicial route. Uh, it's important to remember that the case that gave us the phrase domestic dependent nation was a jurisdictional case in which the Supreme Court said squarely to the Cherokee Nation, you can't bring federal lawsuits. Uh, and uh, that case gets dismissed and then Georgia's imposition of its laws gets challenged by a non-Indian who's imprisoned and there's sort of a way around it. But it's unclear to me how, how this claim would have been pursued. Um, had the Cherokee Nation chose to uh, prior to the modern era when the federal government's been much more open to claims by native tribes. Uh, in response uh, to a couple questions um, that Mr. Burgess raised, uh, one uh, having to do with uh, Senate imposition of obligations on the House of Representatives, um, I think it's important to, to note that that was actually in the Native American law sphere commonplace prior to 1871. Uh, every time the Senate negotiated uh, or rather ratified a treaty that the executive had negotiated, uh, virtually without exception, there was some funding obligation uh, and the House would have to sit down and figure out where to find the money. This won't sound surprising to, to you all. Uh, but in 1871, in the Indian Appropriations Act, uh, Congress insisted on the inclusion of a provision saying we're not doing treaties anymore. From now on, we'll continue to negotiate with tribes, but we're going to call them statutes so that we can have a say in what the terms are. The Treaty of New Echota from 1835 falls squarely in the middle of the period when it was commonplace for obligations like this to be placed on the House uh, by the Senate. And I think it's, it's important to sort of have that in, uh, historical context when figuring out uh, how to implement that right today and maybe put ourselves back into that early 19th century framework um, because, you know, the tribe shouldn't be penalized because the Congress operates differently today. Um, they should, it seems to me, be able to uh, benefit from whatever the status quo was at the time that the treaty was negotiated. The last point uh, I'll make has to do with uh, the, the question from Congressman Burgess about the representatives uh, and delegates from the from the Dakotas. Um, I think the, the point's a fair one, but there's a difference uh, when dealing with the Cherokee Nation and Oklahoma. When, uh, when North and South Dakota became states, they essentially replaced the territory. Uh, and so it, it made sense for uh, the position of delegate to terminate and for the position of representative to replace it. Uh, when Oklahoma became a state, that had no impact on the continuing existence of the tribes. Uh, 
Uh, they continued to exist as governments. They continued to function through the 20th century. And so uh, because it's a different situation, it seems to me there that it's, it's it, it it makes it really doesn't make sense to to uh, to to look to a, an example like the the transition of the Dakotas from territory to state to figure out uh, what the right answer is vis-a-vis -vis tribal uh, the continuing access or right to a tribal delegate. Um, uh, and then I suppose one final thing I'll say is to echo something that many have said, which is to thank the committee uh, again for holding this hearing. I, I agree with everyone who said this is uh, enormously important historically. Uh, I, I might briefly make a nod to uh, the international community, which I'm sure is is watching closely uh, for whatever uh, you may make of that. Uh, most of you will know that the United Nations adopted uh, uh, in 2007 and the U.S. signed on in 2010 uh, Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, um, the move like this to uh, provide representation uh, to recognize a treaty right and to enforce a treaty right uh, from the 1830s um, would, I think, be something that people would pay attention to in the U.S., as Congressman Colwell knows, in recent years, and as I think Chief Hoskin alluded to, has been a global leader in the recognition of indigenous rights, uh, despite some shortfalls and slipbacks. Uh, and I think that um, it, it would speak well uh, to uh, the integrity of the Congress to engage in this sort of bipartisan activity on behalf of indigenous peoples at a time in world history when this is, a, this is a, an issue of, of which humanity is becoming increasingly aware. Thank you very much. Uh, Ms. Schwartz. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to make just a couple of points. Um, first, with uh, your permission, I'd like to read into the record a portion of the uh, court case that my co-panelist recommended to this body, the SOCV United States case of 1986. A treaty is primarily a compact between independent nations and our Constitution declares this Constitution and the laws made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made, shall be the supreme law of the land. And no distinction is there made between a treaty with a foreign nation and with an Indian tribe. A treaty with an Indian tribe, therefore, is a law of the land, as an act of Congress is. And where such treaty prescribes a rule by which private rights can be determined, the court will resort to such a rule. Otherwise, the court must look to the legislation of Congress for the enforcement of its provisions. I think this stands for the proposition that in this instant, in, in this instance, uh, a court would be likely to look to Congress for the enforcement of this treaty provision. Um, although my co-panelist said that at the time this treaty was signed, it was commonplace for obligations like this to be placed on the House without its involvement in the treaty negotiations. Uh, it is important to distinguish that this is an obligation that relates to the internal workings of the House, um, that that sort of obligation was not commonplace and is the reason that this is uh, being considered really for the first time. And we don't have much in the way of case law to guide us. So in the end, the decision uh, really rests with Congress uh, and with this body to interpret those treaty provisions. Thank you. Uh, Chief Hoskin, any? Well, first of all, Mr. Order? Chairman Waddell, again, for holding this hearing, and to all the, the members, including the ranking member, my friend, uh, Congressman Cole. Uh, specifically, Congressman Cole mentioned earlier something very important uh, in the broad scheme, and specifically to Congressman 
for Askins' questions about successor and interest, the Arkansas Riverbed case, which I think you were referencing, is an example of Congress doing the right thing to resolve an issue. I would, though, use that to direct you to an opportunity to resolve the successor and interest issue. The Congress dealt with that in the preamble, the early part of that statute. It's a good resource to resolve this issue in the favor of the Cherokee Nation. More broadly, Mr. Chairman, members, uh, if we start from the idea that the United States always intended to keep this promise, that it always intended what it meant, then we have to get Kim Teehee seated. And I think, I would think there's universal recognition of that. If that's the case, then it, and, and if we recognize that the, the treaty is the supreme law of the land, it carries the weight of law, then I think the Congress is duty bound to seat Kim Teehee. I know there's questions about the manner in which she's seated, uh, very good questions raised today, but I think the conclusion is inescapable. And I think that conclusion uh, can be reached in this calendar year, and it is my hope as Chief of the Cherokee Nation that we achieve that, and I appreciate it. Wado. Thank you. And uh, before I close, I want to yield to my friend, Mr. Cole, for any final comments. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. And again, I want to thank you personally. Uh, this hearing would not have happened uh, without you making the decision for it to happen and uh, uh, certainly working with us on our side of the aisle. And I am extraordinarily grateful and uh, uh, I think um, um, sometimes it's difficult to drag people into these issues because they are complex, and we didn't have to drag you in. You volunteered to step in all on your own, and uh, um, I think you set an example. I hope other committees of jurisdiction follow your lead. Uh, that's number one. I want to thank our witnesses. I thought this was exceptionally good testimony. Um, and as I think I, I remarked early, I, I hope all of you you know, spoke to Congress because the questions that were asked by everybody up here are the questions uh, that our members are asking. Uh, and they do it, it's, it's not a, I always say Native American issues aren't and never should be partisan issues. They are, in this case, it's an institutional issue, it's an issue of sovereignty, it's an issue of trust obligation, there's a lot of things here. And I think the questioning really reflected that today. Uh, I do think it was an historic hearing, and I don't know if you realized how historic it would be when, when you agreed to do it, but I'm glad you did, uh, because I think these are issues that we ought to grapple with. They are very tough issues in some ways about our past, uh, but uh, they're very important issues for us to deal with. For one, I tend to think uh, that this does require congressional action of some sort. You know, I'm open to statute. I'm open to resolution. I think the Cherokees have expressed their willingness to let's just move down the road and see where we end up, and, uh, but whatever. Um, you know, I'm often, uh, I, I wrestle with a lot of these issues in the course of my career here and um, seen a lot of uh, things, uh, mistakes we've made in the past, but, uh, and I appreciate this hearing because I think we've approached it. It's never too late to do the right thing. It's not as if something that happened 150 years, 170 years ago, can't be addressed and corrected now. Uh, and uh, sometimes that's the right things to do. Sometimes maybe circumstances have changed. And, and I, I don't question anybody's motives wherever they come down on this issue. There are some really complex things here. There's some things that deal with the nature of the institution itself. Uh, the election provision is a big one for a lot of House members. Nobody's ever stepped on our floor that hasn't been elected except, as the Chief pointed out, appointed territorial delegates who have. Uh, and I think uh, one of the things that's been very helpful is make it very clear 
that we're talking about a delegate situation here. We're not talking about final passage. We're not talking about something that can't be overruled on the floor. We're talking about something we're all very accustomed to uh, in terms of having delegates. And we have delegates that represent both parties on both sides of the aisle. We have, all our caucuses are familiar with this and how we handle it. So um, I, I just think this has been an extraordinarily helpful hearing in clarifying the issues. And most importantly, and I know this was one of your main aims, Mr. Chairman, uh, making sure that the Cherokee Nation had a forum where its claim could be presented and heard and evaluated in a thoughtful way. That would not have happened without you. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, others have had the opportunity to do it and have chosen not to. You seize the opportunity, and uh, I appreciate that very much. So I look forward to continuing and work with my friends. As, uh, I, I was listening to my friend, Mr. Raskins, who I always learn something, but uh, when uh, uh, he asked was uh, uh, Delegate uh, T here, I thought, she's been here a lot longer than you have, partner. Because <laughs> I worked with her when she was uh, uh, our colleague, late uh, Dale Kildee's uh, top staffer on Indian Affairs, uh, and uh, of course had the opportunity to work with her when she was Chief, uh, President Obama's uh, you know, advisor on Native American Affairs. And if anybody thinks uh, she is not qualified to be here, doesn't know a way around the buildings, uh, we could have her leading tours to the new freshmen that are coming up uh, and advise them on what committees they should, uh, they should be on. Uh, and it was a fascinating discussion about committees, but I tend to come down where Chief Hoskins is. Almost everyone, I sit on the Appropriations Committee, we have enormous impact on Indian country. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, I guess if you had to rule something out, you could say foreign affairs or whatever, but the reality is I wouldn't rule anything out. I think, you know, that that's a decision uh, of, uh, you know, any, any delegate that comes here can sit on any committee. They just have to go through, uh, you know, the process. They might not get the committee assignments they want at first, but eventually you might. So, I mean, we all live in that world. Um, uh, but, again, uh, last, last point, again, the witnesses I thought were exceptional. Uh, and I appreciate the professionalism uh, and the very, very even-handed approach and the education that you provided to all of us on the dais and hopefully through us, through our uh, colleagues uh, and the rest of Congress. Uh, and so, again, Mr. Chairman, thank you very much for holding the hearing. Uh, I appreciate it, and I think you'll look back on it uh, at once your career is done, which I hope is no time soon, uh, as uh, something you can be very proud of having done. And uh, appreciate it. You'll back to my friend, the chairman. Well, thank you. And I, um, I, I want to um, also pay my, uh, my friend, Mr. Cole, a compliment. Um, you know, uh, we've worked together for a long time on a lot of issues. Sometimes we're in agreement, sometimes we're not. But even when we're not in agreement, uh, you know, uh, the, the discussion up here uh, is uh, is actually, you know, the way it should be, uh, respectful of one another, and um, and he, on, when it comes to these issues, there's nobody who is more dedicated uh, uh, and more uh, more of an advocate than he is, and and so I, um, it, it really is a privilege and honor to serve with him. I have, he's a really good friend, and I appreciate. I want to echo what he said. I the, I want to thank the panelists. You were you were excellent, and. You know, we we sit we, we we do a lot of hearings. We sit through a lot of hearings. Some hearings are like not particularly useful um, because nobody ever answers the questions. You all answered the questions, and they were tough questions that we get asked. We were being asked before this hearing. I think you have 
you know, set the record straight. Um, you know, and this is this is where I kind of come down on this. I I personally believe that delicate Teehee ought to be seated. I you know, I mean, if if I, you know, I, I think this is the right thing to do. Uh, as I study this issue, um, you know, I believe it's the right thing to do. It's the moral thing to do. Um, and for a lot of the reasons, Chief, that you have highlighted in your testimony. Uh, and so we got to find a way to get this done. Um, and, um, you, you know, and there's some complications here. Uh, Mr. Raskin raised some issues. I, we, you know, our colleagues have raised some issues. But they're not so complicated they can't be worked out, right? I mean, this is, uh, th this is stuff that we can, we, we can work it out and to get to a point where everybody I think feels relatively uh, comfortable, uh, and um, and so I think we have to figure out how fast we can move, and that depends on, quite frankly, a consensus of this body. Um, do we have the votes to do this? Um, you know, and and we're gonna have to, and we want to do this in a bipartisan way because this is not a this, should, this the, the, these issues should not be not be partisan, um, and so we have to figure this figure this out. We're going to have to reach out to some of the other committees of jurisdiction, to, you know, to get their input on some of this stuff. But I don't want that to be an excuse to, like, you know, five years down the road we have another meeting and you're like, what what happened? I mean, th th this should this can and should be done as quickly as possible. I mean, that is my my view. Look, uh, you know, the history of this country. Is a history of broken of, of broken promise after broken promise to Native American communities. This cannot be another uh, broken promise, and so you have my word, and I, I'm, I'm sure I speak for my my friend Mr. Cole uh, as well uh, that we're going to continue to work with you and to figure out a way to get you know to the finish line here. Um, and um, and I you know I I don't know what's going to happen in our elections. <laughs> uh, you know I. I may not be chair of this committee, um, you know, uh, next year, or, or maybe a miracle will happen, and I will still be. Who knows? But if he is, you're in good hands. Um, but it, it shouldn't matter. I mean, I think we're, we're at the the, the 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 tone of this hearing today was such that this this was this was this is not a partisan issue at all. I should also add the delegates don't get to vote on speaker either. Uh, so that's the other thing, you know. Um, you know, so there's nobody should be. Right, right. Well, we, well, but I, I guess my view at this point is that you know you could do a, you could pursue two avenues here. Um, one is you know a, a simple resolution to change uh, the rules to seat a delegate as, as soon as po possible, even though that's subject to renewal every two years. But at the same time, you can pursue a longer term uh, statute um, so that that no longer is the case. But whatever it is, I mean, we got to figure out a way to, to to move this quickly. So I want to I want to thank all of our witnesses for being here today and for sharing your expertise. I want to uh, thank um, all the members of this committee who participated uh, in this productive conversation, um, and um, and I look forward to seeing what comes next. So, without objection, the Rules Committee stands adjourned. <laughs>